Welcome to our podcast, Doing It Right. This podcast reveals authentic stories from successful leaders doing it right. It's about their journey to become a leader, their choices, motivations, and lessons. In essence, how they built successful personal brands. Your host is Valerie Sokolowski, author of eight leadership books and nationally known as an authority on executive presence and personal branding. Let's get started. Here's Valerie. Well, welcome back. We've got another great show and I've got my water ready to take sips because I get kind of dry. You know, um, I had something really interesting happen recently that I wanted to share with you about authenticity. Because as you know, this whole show is based on what my company is so focused on, building authentic leaders who do it right. You know, who know how to make their mark and make it count and do it by just staying who they are and not trying to become someone they're not. This show is just an expansion of that. Well, here's what happened. I heard a speaker that I was just enthralled with not so long ago. Yes, it's COVID, but sometimes there are speakers in person, now at least in my city, Dallas, and that's what it was. And so this man was just so good and he talked about authenticity and he talked about leadership. That's what he talked about. I even considered having him on the show. And then I just happened to be looking through some Facebook tweets, posts, you know, what happens on social media. That's where sometimes the real shows up. And I was so disappointed because what I saw were some tweets from this very gentleman who started blasting politically. That's all I need to say. We're already so divisive. Why would anyone add any fuel to that fire? But he continued, I was curious, and then I'd check in once in a while. And boy, tweet after tweet after tweet. I tell you this story because at the end of the show, I want to share with you three tips for how you can, at least to the best of our ability, how we can discern if someone is coming from a place of authenticity. So stay tuned. Now let's get to the show. Okay. I have with me today someone that is so credible in her field and so wise in the things she says. Susan Britton is president of the Academies for Coaching and is an expert in brain-based coaching for leadership agility, leadership agility, and for career IQ. You know, we've got emotional IQ. This is career IQ. She'll tell you about that. She's authored seven books. She's trained thousands of coaches on six continents over the last 20 years. Listen to her credentials. She holds designations including a PCC from obviously International Coach Federation, Master Neuropositive Coach from Applied Neuroscience Institute, and a certificate in Peak Performance Coaching from Flow Genome Project. Susan Spunky, and that spunk and her insights make her really a transformational coach trainer. You see, she trains coaches how to be coaches. And she certainly mentors many, many business leaders worldwide. Hi, welcome, Susan. 
Oh, so grateful to be here with you, Valerie. We've got so much to talk about. And I have to say you are from sunny California. Is it sunny in California today, Susan? It is gorgeous in California here today, yes. Well, usually I'm kind of sad to hear that because often it isn't here in Dallas, but we've got a beautiful day today for our show, and I'm, I'm so pleased to say that. We've had a lot of issues, as many people in the country watching know, about our snow issue. Enough said about that. Yeah. You know, uh, Susan, when we talked in our pre-interview, you mentioned that it was important to pay attention to the stories that we tell ourselves. Would you elaborate on that? Absolutely. I think it's fascinating because if someone says, well, what's your story? Tell me your story. Our brains think about which pieces of the story do I want to reveal or what's most important to me or what's the most important to this other person. And so we're always thinking about what is we have the story but we don't always necessarily think about am i choosing the story it can sometimes just come out and not be really the point that you do want to make so i think it's interesting that if we pay attention to the story we're telling ourselves is it really reality is it really what's most important to us is it lifting us up and putting us into a, a proactive empowered state for our future so i just think it's it's fun to think about when somebody asks you about your story what pieces are you picking of all of that narrative of your life susan when i asked your story in our interview you started telling me about your years growing up on the farm in California, which I just thought was really fun to hear. And I'd love for the listeners to listen in on, on that little girl on the farm and what you did. <laughs> Absolutely. So uh, my dad was a farmer and comes from like five generations of farmers. And, you know, that, that farmer sort of agrarian mentality is that you work 24-7. And when I say farm, a lot of people think, oh, like a little 60 acre farm or something. This was kind of a different story, even though it was a teeny tiny town that I grew up in, 2000 people at the time, the farming that was done there was like 10,000 acres. So it was a, a big, large production sort of environment. And in that little tiny town, I uh, just learned the ethics that it takes to be able to work 24 seven. My, one of my first jobs was in a cantaloupe shed and we had to work like from about seven in the morning until nine at night, seven days a week. So really got embedded in me at an early age, this desire to be responsible, to be consistent, to show up. And that I think really influenced me. I, I think I was really born to be an entrepreneur because saw my parents being entrepreneurs. My brothers both are still entrepreneurs. So that influenced me a great deal. Well, now you were on the farm, little girl. And um, <laughs> tell us about how you went from the farm and being in that kind of an environment into then growing up and, and the journey of today, of getting to where you are today. Because I... I I thought it was fascinating bringing in the piece about, well, I was a girl and my brothers were 
guys and mm. girls don't farm. So pick it up from there. Right. Not in those days anyway. Right. So here's this huge uh, production agricultural operation. The boys went off to the ag school in Fresno, had a great Fresno State ag school. And I, as the girl, it just wasn't assumed that you were necessarily going to be a part of that operation. Or maybe that was the story I was telling myself. It's hard to know at that point, uh, because I certainly had supportive parents. So uh, my my mom sort of chose my major for me. And I'm grateful for that because I just didn't have the wherewithal to be thinking about what do I want to be. But she was smart enough to see that I had a love of music. In fact, you can see my piano in the background there still. I had a great love of music and I had a great sensitivity for people and relationships. And so from those two things, she was smart enough to see this discipline called music therapy. And there was a great school just up the road from where we lived in Stockton, the University of Pacific uh, Conservatory of Music. And so that's where I went to school and went on my, my journey of becoming a music therapist. Now you say that you're sensitive. What was that story about uh, Puff the Dragon oh, yeah. or whatever it was that <laughs> you laughed and you said, let me tell you how sensitive I am. I'd love to hear that again. It's a great story. I, I tell people, you know, pay attention to the sticky things in your life. And but by, what I mean by sticky is that usually early on, there's going to be some clue, some portending of what you're going to be good at as an adult. So for me, it's kindergarten. And this was back in the days when Peter, Paul, and Mary were singing Puff the Magic Dragon. And my kindergarten teacher was watching the class and noticed that I was the only person, after they played that song, the only person who started crying. <laughs> I was sad because Jackie Paper went away and I felt bad for everybody, right? Because they were hurting. Well, my mom comes to pick me up from kindergarten uh, after the end of the day or end of the morning. And the teacher says to her, Mrs. Britton, your daughter wears her heart on her sleeve. She was the only kid in the whole class that got the sadness that was associated with this story. And so, you know, watch out for her. Kind of like it's a bad thing. <laughs> it's a good but thing. Yeah. So and as a, as a leader, Susan, take that to leadership because sometimes I hear um, people of both genders, male and female, say in essence things like, you've got to be strong, you've got to be assertive. And then women say, well, I'm assertive, but then they think I'm aggressive. And this whole thing about this strength of, of putting it out there. And look how successful you are staying totally real, who you are, the sensitive, gentle powerhouse that you are. How has that worked for you as you climbed into the success that you are now? I think it's really allowed me to create trust and relationships with people. And people, we know this, that people want to do business with or work with people they know, like, and trust. And so if I can see in another person using that sensitivity or that empathy, if I can look and see what makes them tick, 
What's important to them? What might they be concerned about as it, as it comes to relating to me? Or if I'm on the job and talking to one of uh, our employees, what if I can think about what their world is like and understand that, not that I, I can understand everything, but if I can at least try and have a level of humility about that, then, and this is where I love the whole brain-friendly piece to come in, then that calms people down. And the minute that you've got sort of empathy and compassion going, then you've got this oxytocin opiate system activated in your body. And when that is activated, people, the studies show, they're more open to listening to different opinions. They're more likely to take risks and do some new behavior that or new skill that perhaps they haven't done in the past or listen to you and collaborate with you. And so I think it's really served me well in that process. Susan, go back to whatever the medical term was about the brain. Let's bring up the brain uh, sure. about how you incorporate using the brain in teaching coaches to coach. So, so start please with every day I get up, this is what I do. In other words, what is it that your academy is doing? And then how do you incorporate your brain work into the outcome of what people get when they come to work with you? Absolutely. The, so our motto is changing minds for good. And obviously there's a double entendre there, changing minds for good in, the, in a position or a direction that's really going to be empowered, creative, collaborative, inclusive, uh, that, that sort of positive direction good. And then the other good is changing minds for good. Can we sustain that change? As opposed to, I go to a workshop and I'm really excited or I read a new book and I'm really excited but then it disappears within seven hours or 17 hours. So changing minds for good and then bringing the coaching piece into that from a brain-friendly perspective, it used to be that when, when coaching started some 20, 25 years ago, it was all about these empowering beliefs. Like if you could just stop the limiting beliefs and open up the empowering beliefs, then you're gonna be able to change behavior. So it's like beliefs drive behaviors. Well, with the explosion of neuroscience the last number of years or decade or so, there's really been so much more evidence for us to understand that our biology is driving our beliefs. And what I mean by that is that if we are in some sort of a fight flight state that we're all familiar with, that, that place where we're more contracted, more defensive, more perhaps aggressive, or even running away, sort of withdrawing or um, isolating. If we're in one of those states, the research shows that our, our blood flow sort of comes off of the smart part of our brain and it heads out to our big muscle groups where we can indeed fight or flight. And so when that blood flow gets removed from the, the smart part of the brain, not removed entirely, but kind of drained away a bit, we do not think as strategically. We do not think as creatively. So what our organization really likes to emphasize, and we call that the red zone when we're in that fight flight state, we like to emphasize that if you're aware and self-compassionately aware of when you're in that state, that you already have just tied half of your brain behind your back. I heard one medical doctor call it a do-it-yourself lobotomy. 
<laughs> so leaders, if they are in that state of being afraid about the next budget cut or worrying about the next competitor that's coming on or uh, being frustrated or about a team member that's not doing what they want them to be doing, that state is diminishing their ability to think strategically as well as to relate well, not just to the direct report, but the clients and their teams and the people that they go home to and live with in the evenings and the weekends. So it's really important to understand that the biology drives the beliefs, drives the behaviors. All right, I wanna give you a scenario and uh, coach this person that I'm going to tell you about as an example. Leaders are on Zoom meetings all day. And this is a consistent message that I hear from those I coach. Valerie, it's really hard to schedule a coaching session these days with you because I am on Zoom meetings from seven in the morning till seven at night, and they're not exaggerating. And then I ask the leader who's planning those meetings, when do you expect the people to get the work done? Well, that's a whole nother conversation. But knowing that leaders and all of us are zoomed in and we're constantly being given information, tasks to do, deadlines to meet, and so forth. I'm talking about in, in work now. Let's say that there is a woman, I'll say woman, on this Zoom call and she does sense and feel this I'll just call it angst. Is there a better word for it than angst? The angst will work. <laughs> okay. So she does feel this angst. And from what you're saying, then stuff happens up in our brain. And the reason I know she experiences angst is because then in coaching sessions, there's this fear that comes up. This is just a scenario I'm thinking about. Uh, there's this concern about, oh my gosh, what if I don't perform? And, oh my gosh, when am I going to get the work done? And, oh my gosh, how am I going to keep my team engaged? And, oh my gosh, I am really getting tired. <laughs> how do you coach something like that that's real? And... The first thing I would say is that you can never coach somebody who's not actually in the room. And yet at the same time, it's a great case study that you're presenting because you probably just described the majority of leaders uh, on the planet today. So from a brain-friendly perspective, I am always going to go back to that, my soapbox of biology, beliefs, behavior. So if you pay attention to the biology and you ask that leader, what do you notice when you're in that space of worrying about, am I gonna get it done? Is that employee gonna come through? What if we don't get our funding? What do you notice about yourself in that process? So when you ask that question of what do you notice about yourself, that kind of forces the brain to stop projecting into the future because our brain is either in the future worrying about what's going to happen, hopefully thinking about positive things, but oftentimes worrying about what's going to happen in the future or our brains in the past thinking about how I blew it, ruminating over some situation or scenario. 
So when you ask, what do you notice about your body or yourself in that moment, it takes people into the present. And that's a starting point to simply notice that. And the other thing that happens is now when you get out of the worry zone and the ruminate zone, now you're back into the smart part of the brain and you can kind of shut down that, what they call that amygdala hijack. So that, that would be one place that I would start with. Pay attention to what that is. The second thing that I would also look at would be to use a very compassionate approach to that because the reason somebody typically is worrying is that they want to be a valued member of their team, their company, their family, their society. And that performance question of, am I enough? Will I get it done? Really says, will I be valued? Will I be able to contribute in, in this setting? So if you compassionately frame that worrying based on, I really want to do good on this planet, then that brings that self-compassion into your body. And there's a researcher down the, road, down the road from you at UT Austin. Her name is Kristen Neff. And she's done some fascinating research around what happens when we have self-compassionate thoughts towards ourselves. And um, it can impact quality of life. It impacts relationships. Her research has just gone viral, but it's really interesting to start thinking about that. So that's the second piece I would do is start looking at understanding why I'm doing this. So I'll stop beating myself up about worrying in the first place or all the other things I'm worrying about. Those would be two places. From there, now what happens is that now you're opening up greater creativity, greater intelligence, greater ability to see the bigger picture. There's um one performance coach who is also an MD based in Britain, his name is Alan Watkins, and he talks about that when you're in this greater state of calm and coherence, and when I say calm, I don't mean you're a couch potato. I mean that you are still ready to take action and with all of your full capabilities. So what he talks about is that once you're in that state, you actually have possibly double or triple the amount of brain processing power to be able to um, ideate, think of solutions, bring people together to collaborate on those things. So from that state, that's where you're going to have a much better ability to say, hey, what's the fastest way to get this done? What ideas do people have? What pieces of this could we actually drop or put off or delay? So now you are in a much more proactive, empowered state as opposed to a reactive, more sort of I'm a victim of my circumstances much better to be in that place where you're in the center of the room, not backed into a corner, where you're in that place of really feeling like I have options, I have choices, and this is what I want to create in the future. So now I'm out of the worried future and I'm, at, I'm into the desired future that I'm creating and co-creating with others. That's a much more powerful place to operate from. Susan, that is just powerful. I mean, I want to go back now and listen and write down everything you said. Listeners, I told you, here's this calm <laughs> powerhouse of wisdom. And she just shared some real nuggets that I hope you'll take uh, into consideration the next time your brain starts doing something silly like that. Uh, I'm going to call that a teachable point of view, right? Because it's trusting the dots that are, that are being connected with what's happening and what's going on in the brain. I can so see why it's uh, a real benefit to 
go through the coaching skills and all that's taught through International Coach Federation and add to it the wonderful neuroscience now that you have uh, so wisely added into your toolbox. So let's keep going with this. I, I, I think this is um, fascinating to hear because we all need it. Me too, as a coach. Coaches need coaches, right? <laughs> Absolutely. So, and, and make it clear, I do have my moments. I promise you. <laughs> I promise you that. I'm going to call you next time I need coaching, Susan. <laughs> all right, let's keep going. We, uh, we talked a little bit about, from women's perspective, this imposter syndrome that's become almost a cliche and it's talked about and it's kind of trendy and there's research on it. What would you say about imposter syndrome? What is it? Oh, it, you know, imposter syndrome, I, I'm not an, an expert in that. I do have some thoughts on that. And I think it goes back to what we talked about on our story, the pieces of the story that we choose to pick up and that we choose to start repeating. So anything, this is from a brain-friendly perspective, anything that we start repeating be, adds all of these different neural connections into our brain. And so if you repeat something over and over and over and over and over again, your brain is going to say, pay attention. We better make more neural connections around that because it's getting repeated. So what the brain needs to, to add new learning is to some sort of form of repetition. So if the narrative is, if they only knew, I'm not good enough. What if I get found out? What if I can't do this project? What if I can't deliver it on time? What if my team actually sees that I have feet of clay? All of those kinds of pieces of story start impacting our identity. And here's the biology again. Once you start saying, oh my gosh, I you know, got away with it that time, if they really only knew, what happens to your body at that point is you're feeling some level of embarrassment, fear, shame, guilt, those kinds of things. And all of those emotions contract our body. We put, it puts us into that fight flight state, that red zone state that I referred to. And so if you, the imposter syndrome is something that you're familiar with, and I know a lot of people are, and I've certainly had my times with it and probably still um, deal with it somewhat as well, like everybody. If you're in that red zone state, all you're doing is handcuffing your brain and your heart because you don't have the, the blood flow and you don't have the immune system kind of amped up to feel better. And when you feel better, if you're not beating yourself up with that imposter syndrome, when you feel better, you're gonna have a better brain, a better digestive system, a better reproductive system, a better immune system, a better everything. And so it's important to, be, to, to recognize like what story am I telling myself? Susan, how do you keep your mojo up? Oh, gosh. I spend time with people like you. <laughs> There's a start. <laughs> and I, I showed you, you know, I've got, I, I love reading. So, like, I've got my books here that I'm reading. These kinds of things just really light me up. And it reminds me and gets myself out of my head because I am an introvert and introverts can be known to kind of be in their head. So if I can stay connected to people, I call them my bone marrow buddies, uh, people that really feed life into me and think 
and see the best of me. And if I spend time with people that I can't necessarily sit down and have dinner with, but I can read their books, that reminds me of what's possible. Can I be one of your bone marrow buddies, please? They already are. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to leave the show without asking you uh, to share with us a couple of more things, Susan. And one of them was about stepping up to the plate and not, it flows with what we're talking about, not expecting to be perfect. Something about uh, Georgetown. Right, right. So I think if there's a theme to my career, it's it's been that something unexpected is probably going to come along, pay attention to it, and even if you're scared, step up to the plate, step up with a great deal of curiosity and, and, and a kind of a sense of experimenting as opposed to, I have to get this right and perfect right out of the gate. So my Georgetown story is that I got into coaching and I first started with career coach training programs and then we added leadership coach training programs. There was a, a, a lovely woman, Patricia Buchek, who I trained as a career coach. And about six years later, she went to work at Georgetown University McDonough School of Business. And she picked up the phone and called me one day and said, Susan, it's Patty. And I've just signed on with Georgetown. And I want you to come and train the coaching team here in the way that you train me. And I said, Patty, that sounds fascinating but I know nothing about the business school MBA world. And she said, that's okay. I know it. You know coaching. We'll do this together. And I stepped into that really not having a great understanding of that world. And yet I kept at it and I kept collaborating and I you know, found mentors along the way. And that's become a, a significant part of our business these days. So you just stepped on up and you are continuing to step on up. And, and that story relates also to something you said, which is powerful. You said, what we resist persists. Delve down into that a minute. Right. So I don't get credit for that. I, uh, I think it was um, Pearl, the, the famous psychologist that, that said that. But basically what it means is that if you are complaining about something, resenting something, you know, protesting against it, battling with it, it then becomes resentment or, or uh, it becomes some sort of negative emotion for you. And once that happens, as I've been on my soapbox about, once you contract your biological state, you are not going to be able to be as proactive about it. So let's say for a leader, it might be that you are frustrated that, um, well, I, here's a, a story. You, I, I'm thinking about a CEO, brilliant woman, like we're talking IQ about 180, so gifted, so intellectual, and she, not everybody is going to be as smart as her. And so within her team, there may be people that don't have the intellect that she has. They don't have the curiosity and the, the openness that she has to learn so much. And so 
those people then resist her ideas and she then, it can in some situations, resist their ideas because she seems to know more than they do. And this is common for a lot of leaders who have worked their way up the ranks. So if there's that sense of resisting somebody else, all you end up doing is kind of coming to loggerheads. In fact, I, I pulled this out from my desk. Um, everybody knows what this little thing is, this little Chinese finger trap, right? <laughs> and if you start kind of pulling and getting tense, the last thing you're gonna do is be able to get out of that. So that if you're resisting it, this isn't coming off. It's only until you relax and sort of push in that you can, excuse me, lean into it, that you can get out of that trap. So it, it's, it's an interesting thing. And, and oftentimes, too, the thing that you're resisting. So let's talk about from a leadership perspective. If you're trying to grow a team or a business or sales or whatever it might be, and I recognize this in my own company, if you're trying to grow something and you have this beautiful vision for it, and especially for somebody like me who is very much futuristic and possibility oriented, I don't love details. If you look at my top Clifton Strengths strengths profile, I have zero executing skills. So I don't like those details. And if I resist those details, I am never going to grow that business. So you've got to find the balance between the, the things that are really important to you and also not be frustrated by the other things that may not be as important to you. But if you don't pay attention to those things, if you don't deal with those things, they're going to come back to bite you. I've just learned so much from you, Susan, and I know the listeners have. Thank you for sharing all of this. And by the way, I noticed something that you have done. I do all the time. I'm Italian, so my hands are always up. You had a lot of body language from a brain perspective. Tell us about the use of hands on Zoom meetings. Yes, hands up, right? Um, one of the people that I love and I get inspired by is Vanessa Van Edwards, and she's got a great TED Talk. And in her TED Talk, she talks about when people can see your hands, there's something that's sort of ancient about that sense of, I know that she comes in peace, like hands up. That's obviously a, a bit of a, a loaded kind of thing right now. However, on Zoom, we come onto Zoom, and if there's just you know this much of our head showing, people can't see the rest of your body. They can't tell if you're relaxed, if you're friendly, if you're in a good mood. And if you have your hands up, there's something sort of um, primordially um, influential to help somebody to know you don't have a stick or a knife or uh, you know something behind you that's going to harm them. So in all in the day of Zoom calls when that's so common if we can just say hey when you come onto a call or bye or use some language and too that on those TED talks that um, I was just mentioning that of uh, Vanessa Van Edwards she discovered that the TED talks that had gone viral were the ones that used appropriate big hand gestures. So there's some great research around how that helps us to connect with other people. So I'm not Italian, but I, I think you got it going there. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great way to end the show because 
we're all on Zoom meetings. And ironically, Susan, you never know how the fingers of what we do, you know, we, we, we're leadership development, right? But then there's this piece, this piece, this piece. Well, guess what? In the last six months, I've been asked to and have done webinars on Zoom etiquette. So most of you know, as a Fox News contributor, I'm known for image and etiquette. I don't care what you call it, <laughs> it's presence and it's how you do things right. And so isn't that interesting that now Zoom calls is a whole nother business for me. <laughs> and I'm gonna add that big time. How can we get in touch with you, Susan? We can be found online, our website, www.theacademies.com. And happy to connect there, social media, LinkedIn. Um, love to be a part of your community if something like this coach approach sounds right for you as a, a developmental next move or for your leaders. Well, I'm sure you will be getting some emails or calls and thank you for that. Thanks so much for being on the show. I really am grateful for the wisdom that, that you shared on a lot of levels, lots of good tips. And that's what we do on this show, share our journeys. Thank you, Susan. My sincere pleasure. And so, okay, thank you for staying tuned in. I told you I'd give you three tips on how to know if someone is really authentic. Well, tip number one is pretty simple. Watch for the red flags. You know, you can observe something that someone does that seems a little off from, let's say, a behavior you expected from that person but you don't think a lot about it. You just kind of file it. I would say that's a little red flag. Well, if you get to number three red flag, I think you've got it pretty nailed. Maybe this person is not walking the talk. So watch for the red flags. The second one is really as we always should when we are listening to wisdom from other people. Listen to, let's say, a boss or appear to the words behind the words. It isn't sometimes even what we say. It can be how we say it. So is this person's communication, the way they communicate with you, something they say or something that may be underlying an intent that you pick up on? Listen to the words behind the words. And then the third one is what I found. If you doubt, go on social media and see what's being posted. Or worse yet, nothing is on social media and they don't even have a picture on LinkedIn. Hmm, what's that about? So I hope that's of help. Thanks for listening. To receive Valerie's voice, free monthly leadership tips, and to learn more about her leadership programs and coaching, visit her website, ValerieAndCompany.com. Next week, we'll be here again to inspire, engage, and equip you with teachable points of view from successful leaders who have been doing it right. Until then, lead authentically.